Well, good evening, everybody. So, so good to see you. Uh, you can't imagine how much it warms my heart to see some faces that I haven't seen for a while and to see you come out. Thank you for, uh, in a season when gathering has so many obstacles, the fact that you're here and joining us, whether you're joining us online or here with us tonight, uh, is really a testimony to the grace of God in your lives. So uh, I hope with everything that is going on that it is prompting and stirring your heart to say, I, I need to be with God's people. I hope it's stirring up a fresh desire. And I know there can be a sort of COVID fatigue set in and isolation can set in and it's easy to pull back. But, oh, I just I hope God's spirit is just stirring your heart. Uh, as Bill mentioned, community groups are up and running. Uh, please avail yourself of that. We, we need each other more than ever through seasons like what we're going through. So please find a group, jump in, give yourself to it, and invest yourself in it, and I know God will meet you in that. Okay, let's um, well, pray with me. Uh, let's ask for God's blessing on his word as we open up the scriptures together. Uh, so join me just briefly. Father, uh, we come just before we open up the scriptures, before we begin uh, Lord, what you've put on my heart, what's prepared to bring. We have one simple request. Lord, show us wonderful things from your word. Open wide our hearts to hear and receive what you have to say. Uh, we pray that it would be, Lord, like food for our soul. Lord, the times are unique. The challenges are many. Uh, our souls need you. So, Lord, we pray that that would be stirred up in each one of our hearts. Lord, a hunger for you. Uh, and with that, Lord, comes a hunger for your word. And so open wide our hearts to receive. And, Lord, feed your flock in and through the scriptures tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 10, so if you do happen to have a physical Bible or, uh, or an app in your hand and you want to flip there, we'll read uh, about 10 verses together in just a couple minutes. Let me just introduce where we're heading tonight. The, the, the people of God throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and in the church to this day, including you and me, have always had a challenging time of keeping on track with who we are as the people of God and what it means to live in a society that doesn't belong to God. It's always a challenge. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a difficult road to walk, and uh, we, we, we struggle with it. We struggle with keeping our identity and keeping our purpose. It's easily lost, easily lost in the fray of the busyness of life and the demands and the culture and the pressures and all the ideologies that are, that are coming at us from different sides. It is so easy to lose sight as the people of God about who we are and why we're here. Who are you? Why are you here? Who am I? And what am I doing here? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I know you have. And those are at oftentimes some of the most difficult, challenging, even traumatic 
seasons of our lives when we're, when we're deeply questioning, who am I and what am I doing here? Now, as Christians, we know there are a couple basic principles that most of you have been around for a while. You kind of know these things and you understand that on the one hand, like 1 John 2.15 tells us that we are not to love the world or the things in the world. And James 1.27 tells us to keep ourselves unstained from the world. So on the one hand, we have this, this concept. Don't fall in love with the world and keep yourself unstained from the world. Now, on the other hand, on the other side of this, we are called as the people of God to go into all the world and proclaim and to allow, make a way for your light to shine. In fact, you are meant to be, you and I are meant to be, as the people of God, salt in the earth. Our identity is to be set apart as the people of God. Set apart to God, set apart by God, set apart for God, while at the same time we have a purpose, which is to engage this world, this society that we live in by bringing the grace of God into it, into the world that we live in. So I think many of us sort of understand these two concepts of identity and purpose. And then you move into a neighborhood and you go to school and you get a job and you start interacting with people. And all of a sudden you realize, I get the concepts but now figuring it out when I'm really talking with somebody who doesn't know the Lord, who thinks Christianity is goofy or nonsense or something, now all of a sudden life becomes difficult. Life becomes a little challenging, and we've got a couple temptations. These two principles present a couple temptations to us. One, on the one side, there's a temptation to withdraw. We're called to be set apart to stay unstained from the world, to not fall in love with the world. So why not pull back? Why not withdraw? Why not form our own little conclave, a little Christian subculture, and stay nicely isolated because that feels sort of safe? And that feels like we can be free from getting ourselves stained by the world. So that's an error on one side. And on the other side is to assimilate assimilate into the world so much that we lose our identity. We're no longer the people of God because for all intents and purposes, for all practical purposes, we look just like everybody else who's not following the Lord. Sometimes that feels like, boy, you're walking a narrow path with huge cliffs on both sides. Sometimes it feels like a tightrope, just balancing in between those two things and trying to figure out, boy, how do we do both at the same time? Jeremiah 10 is Jeremiah preaching to a people that have fallen off one side of that cliff. They have assimilated. They have adopted the culture around them so much that they have, as the people of God, completely lost their identity. They were indistinguishable from the nations around them. They had adopted the culture that they lived in to such an extent that they had lost their identity. Let's read together from Jeremiah chapter 10. We'll read the first 10 verses together. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. 
Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all the kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. The people of God that Jeremiah is talking to lost their identity as the people of God and thereby lost their purpose that God had for them as the people of God. Jeremiah comes to them to challenge this, to call them to repentance and so this loss of identity and this loss of purpose, I just want to lay out simply like this, the source of the problem, the problem itself, and then the solution that we find in this text. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 10, the issue that's being pointed out is that these people wanted to fit in. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Jeremiah chapter 9, and the issue there was we want to glory in something. We want to boast in something. And we tend to choose the wrong things to boast in. And we were challenged to like, no, there's only really one thing that we ought to be boasting in. And that's that we understand and know the Lord. This time in the next chapter, he's talking to a people that are among the nations and they simply want to fit in. They're picking a family, but they're picking the wrong family. Have you ever felt like you just want to fit in? I, I know you do. We, we all do. I mean, who wants to feel like you don't belong, where you're, you're out of place? Who wants to be perceived as, as goofy or, or stupid, and so you keep your mouth shut, and then you make the mistake of opening your mouth and actually proving it's like, oh, who wants to be uninformed? Who wants to feel out of place? And these people were struggling with this very issue. Now, look closely at the very second verse of what we read. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. Do you see Jeremiah addressing these people and saying, look, you've been assimilating into the culture around you, and that's the problem. That's what's gone wrong here. That's how this thing has gotten off track. That desire is really not an unusual desire. And in fact, I, I'm 
I'm convinced that we're all sort of given by God a, a genuine sense inside our heart for, I'm, I'm going to call it home. We want to be at home. We want to be comfortable where we are. We want a, a place where we belong, where we feel safe, where we feel secure, where we experience provision, where we are loved by people that love us, we love them. This, this concept about home is, is so significant and it, it can cause a temptation for us to seek it in the wrong place when we feel out of place. This is the challenging really reality of being a Christian. We're alien, we're strange, we're sojourners, we're, we're guests, we're, we're like, we're, we're not entirely at home and yet we all crave this idea of being completely at home. Yet we're somewhat in exile with a longing for home. That is a major theme throughout the entire Bible. In fact, the entire biblical story, the narrative from beginning to end is really like this about home and exile and the, and the challenge and the struggle. The, the Bible starts in the Garden of Eden, the first real home. Adam and Eve there in the garden, the place that God created for them and created them and set them. Here's, here's your new home. Everything was there. It was safe. They had what they needed, the food, the shelter, the people. There was love between them. But most of all, most important thing, God was present there in that home with them. That's the key. Truly, home is home in the truest sense of the word when God is present. But you know the story. Sin entered the picture very quickly here and changed the scene from home to exile, out of the garden, away from the presence of the Lord. And Cain, the son who killed his brother Abel, now sort of depicts the, 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 this sort of the epitome of the exile, the wanderer, like away from the presence of God. And he says, too much for me to bear. This punishment is, is too much. You mean no home? I can't be home? And he's this wanderer away from the presence of God. Genesis 12 the plan of God begins to take effect when he calls Abraham. And the plan begins to unfold, which is, Abraham, I'm going to call you out of your place, out of your home, and I'm going to give you a new home. And I'm going to make you a father of a family, even a father of, of nations. And so he calls Abraham and gives him this promise of home, a land, a place where the people of God can, can dwell. And so history begins to unfold and the plan of God is making its progress and Moses gathers the, the family of God, the people of God, and leads them out of slavery and begins this journey to their new home, the promised land, and they go through uh, 40 years in the wilderness and they arrive at the promised land. And then we get to our point with Jeremiah chapter 10 where Jeremiah enters the picture and we have the people of God living in the place that God had provided for them, and yet they had given up the most important part, knowing the Lord, living in the presence of God. 
this was lost to them. So now their identity as the people of God was gone because they assimilated into the culture and became just like the nations around them. And then the purpose of God was lost because God was establishing them as his people, set apart as his people, to live distinctly as his people so that they could be the, the, the vessel, the means for the grace of God to be displayed to the rest of the nations. Jeremiah steps in and calls them to repentance. That was really the, the essence of the entire book of Jeremiah. We could sum it up in, in three words, return to me. God calling out to his people through Jeremiah, return to me. You've left me. You've walked away from me. You've gone away from my ways. You've rejected my ways. Now return to me. And that was Jeremiah's message in a nutshell. But he also was declaring God's judgment, which was, surprisingly, exile. God says, Here, here's how we're going to respond and remedy this situation. I gave you a home, and you didn't do what I really was calling you to do. You forsook me. You left my presence out. You forsook my ways, and you became just like the nations. You know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to take you out of your home and I'm going to put you in theirs. I'm going to set you in Babylon. I'm going to set you so far from any semblance of your sense of home. You are going to be in such a strange, strange land among such strange people. And there I'm going to work in your heart and you are going to get it right and begin to understand you belong to me. And I have you where I have you for a reason. And then he encourages them, when you get into Babylon, I want you to seek the welfare of that city. Can you imagine the, 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 the change in, in mindset that these people had to go through? God is working out his plan and sets them in a different place. I think, I'm convinced, God is at work in us. I believe God is calling us to really embrace wholeheartedly our identity as the people of God. I believe God is calling us to our purpose of really reaching the people that don't know him that are around us. I think it's a little bit ironic in our text, God takes the people of God and takes them out of their home and puts them in a foreign land. And I was thinking about what's happening with us here. I know it's not uncommon for a Christian to be uh, with this mindset that the United States has been a Christian nation founded on Christian principles. And so we kind of grew up with this mindset. This is a Christian nation. And of course, we're, we're all filled with consternation about the changes and things that are happening uh, in our nation, how we see the world around us changing. What I see God doing is not moving us out, but moving around what's around us. And the ungodliness is now, in a sense, all around us. I mean, he, he didn't, you don't have to move, okay? You, you don't have to leave California to find your mission field because the mission field came to us. 
the changes that have taken place that continually take place are our mission field forming all around us every day, making it all the more important for us to understand who we are as the people of God, set apart, distinct from the culture around us, but here with purpose, with God's purpose, with, with God's intention for the nation that we live in, in the society that, that we live in. We are to be that representation of God's grace in this place. That's what God was doing with them. That's what God is doing with us. But we have to be careful because the opportunity, the temptation to lose our identity as the people of God and to assimilate into the culture are many and we need God's spirit to help us. That longing for home can easily be the very thing that tempts us and moves us into this kind of idolatrous assimilation. The reality for you and I as Christians is that we are called to live just as content with the promise of a future home as we are as if we had it presently. And the reason we don't have it presently and need to live by faith in the promise of a future home is because God has a purpose for you and for me and for us here today in Pasadena, in Southern California. In 2020, in 2021 and beyond, God has a plan and a purpose. It's crucial that you and I not lose our identity and not lose our sense of purpose. Let's look at the actual problem that Jeremiah points out. It's about idolatry. We talk often about idolatry. Idolatry is really the, the most often talked about human heart issue problem in the Bible. It comes up often. Let's, let's, let's just define it again. I know you're familiar with some of this, but, but I, an idol is really anything that in some way displaces God as the functionally most important influence in our lives. Okay, so we can think beyond a block of wood, a chunk of metal that somebody's bowing down to. The Bible broadens this definition of an idol, even though that's sort of what's in place in Jeremiah chapter 10. But the Bible opens this up. Anything that captures our heart, whenever our dependence upon God is subverted, there is some form of idolatry taking place. I love the question that David Powelson poses to sort of x-ray into idolatry in our hearts. He asks this question, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title of your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, delight? An idol can be anything, anything, anyone that tends to preoccupy our hearts, bumping God down a notch or two and taking his place in our 
heart where now that becomes the thing. I must have that. That is where my true desires are. That's where my longings are. That's what I fear more than anything else. That's where I find my delight. In summary, when anything created becomes more important than the creator, there's idolatry. Now, Jeremiah's message is to sort of expose the foolishness of idolatry. And here you have to wonder if the guy's getting a little sarcastic with the people. But he makes the point that an idol is man-made. They are the work of the craftsman and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They're all the work of skilled men. So maybe a, a work of art to be enjoyed or appreciated, but certainly not worshipped. Jeremiah gives us a sort of a creation account of an idol. Guy goes out into the woods, chops down a tree. It's fun to read Isaiah chapter 40. He has a little more fun with it too. Guy chops down a tree, gets a block of wood, chops the wood up, makes a fire, gets warm by the fire, cooks his meal over the fire, eats his meal, and then takes the other half of the piece of the wood and carves it and bows down to it and worships it and says, you're my savior. Being a bit sarcastic, showing the stupidity and the foolishness of taking something created and looking to it as if it's the creator. Idols, he says, they're, they're are really powerless. They need someone's help to stand up. You have to work with them and nail them down and affix boards to them and balance them so that they can stand. Uh, they, they can't walk. They can't talk. They can't smell. They can't speak. They, they, they can't do anything. And yet we know in Psalm 115, those who make them, and those who trust in them become like them. They only have power because we give them power. The only power is the influence that they have in our lives because we give ourselves to these things that are not God. Jeremiah says, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. The only real power to keep the birds away is just the impression that there's trouble there. But there is no trouble. It's just sticks and clothes. It's just a, a made-up nothing, piece, bunches of material. And, and the birds won't go into the field. So the cucumbers are there. I'm a bird. I'm hungry. I like cucumbers. Cucumbers are there. But there's a scarecrow there, and I'm looking around, and nobody else is going, so I'm not going to go. Now, can you imagine the Lord provides for us a feast, a table, a feast full of the richest of foods, and we won't go to it because we're looking at something else, something created, something less, something that is not God. Something else has captured our heart. Something else has captured our attention. And Jeremiah is trying to juxtapose these two things as extremely far apart as possible 
and say, do you realize, do you realize what's going on? Do you realize you're choosing something that is so meaningless, so powerless, so ineffective, so useless to satisfy? There's no real power there. Jeremiah cries out, don't get lost in this foolishness. Because we live around customs of the peoples, as our text refers to, that are just vain. They are not helpful, right customs of the people. We live in customs of individualism, personal fulfillment, consumerism, financial independence without generosity. We have, we have views of, of marriage that just make it difficult to stay in a healthy marriage because marriage is depicted as just, it is entirely your personal fulfillment. And the moment you don't feel personally fulfilled, you feel it's time to get out because the thing isn't working. And the, and the, the, the irony of the whole thing is that with that mindset going in, you actually forfeit your greatest personal fulfillment in marriage. While you're trying to get the very thing that you think you want the most, you end up forfeiting it because there's a custom of the nation. There's a custom of the peoples around us that if we buy into it, we lose. Children. Wow, let's talk about children, having children. Let's start with abortion. We live in a society where there's just this broad view that basically it's it's okay for a mother to kill that child this is okay if that child is is inconveniencing her it's her right to do this if the child doesn't fit into your plans that well you have the right to eliminate it I read another article this, this past week in Christianity Today. I was sort of tracking with this Netflix cuties um, headline, this movie that of young girls, underage girls being over-sexualized, and Netflix put this up and caused a big stir. And uh, a gal named Hannah Anderson wrote an article in Christianity Today uh, and, and making the point that uh, it's not just Netflix, but there's sort of a bigger problem going on here like uh, Netflix did this because Netflix knew a lot of us would buy it you know they knew us and so they they went ahead with this idea and so she her point was simply not that Netflix was right but that there's a bigger problem that we need to talk about and she had a little quote a little paragraph like this he says in, in thinking about children, how we view children, he says, she says, in our culture, we prize efficiency, but children are inefficient. We value wealth creation, but children are costly and can't pay their own way. We honor independence and radical autonomy, but children are dependent and hamper our freedom. We drive toward what Wendell Berry calls the objective, but children like to tag along meandering the meandering route home. See, Children are not convenient, but children are a blessing. Children are good, wonderful gifts from God, but they are certainly not convenient. It's just one of the ways that our culture 
is communicating to us. There's ways of the culture. Belonging to a local church community. Expressing love for one another. Commitment to one another. Well, that takes time and effort. How's that fitting into your life? Conveniently? Working out real well? Coming to church when it's hard to come to church? Being in a community group? Investing in people? Getting to know people? Caring about them? Carrying their needs on your heart? Helping them when they're in need? Is that, is that fitting into your lifestyle nice and easily and making your life all easy and, and comfortable? Not, a, not at all. Not at all. So if that's your goal, this becomes unusually hard. And yet Jesus tells, this, this is how everybody's going to know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. And if you stop loving each other, you stop gathering together, you stop meeting together, you stop caring for one another, well, then, then the testimony is lost. The very thing that was supposed to speak to the world around is gone. Identity lost, purpose lost. Well, let's come around. The third point is the solution. I have this wonderful confession. This psalm, this song sort of interjects a bit unexpectedly into this chapter. There's none like you, O Lord. And all this talk about idols and the foolishness of idolatry. Oh, there, Lord, there's none like you. There's no one like you. See, there's a true kind of Christian motivation. See, it's, uh, I don't know if you've found this to be true, but it's, just, it, it's not enough to just say, hey, stop worshiping idols. You just stop it. Will you stop doing it? Just quit it. Don't do that, Okay. And we know that, that life is, is not just these mere cognitive decisions about this, this or that. There's so much going beneath the surface, so much going on in our hearts. And so it's, it's not just a stop it expression here, but here comes this wonderful song. Here's why you should not be bowing down to anything but the Lord, because there's no one like him. No one, nothing is like him. He is unique in, in every possible way. To contrast an idol with the living God is a huge contrast. Look at it, meditate on it, and realize there is none like you, O Lord. Say it personally. We, we sang the song, there's no one like our God. We sing that for each other to hear. We sing it. I sing it. You sing it. So we hear it. We're saying this corporately. There's, there's no one like our God. But here, Jeremiah is writing it like this. No, it's you personally. You saying to the Lord, there's no one like you, O Lord. You, I need to have this song in our heart. This is how you need to feel about God. You need to genuinely be able to realize and say with your whole heart, Lord, there's no one like you. This is why I choose to belong to you. This is why I cherish being one of your people. Because there's no one like you. I know there's many other things that can satisfy and please. And there's lots of pulls to do this and that and go this direction or that direction. But Lord, when I weigh it all, there's none like you. And I want you, and I want you alone. And if I have only you and nothing else, that is better than having everything else without you. Jeremiah backs up his claim about the Lord. In verse 12, he talks about how the Lord made everything. 
as opposed to idols who are merely the work of some craftsmen. The gods, in verse 11 says, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth. But God made all things. He spoke the word and the earth came to be. All that is was created by this God. He's the creator. We have this wonderful concept in Hebrews chapter 3. It says he's the builder of the house, making him greater than the house itself, talking about Moses. It's like the, the thing is one thing, but the builder of the thing is better, greater. You can honor the thing. You can appreciate the thing. You can value the piece of art. You can, you can value the good thing that it is. But there's something much greater. The one who created it all, who made it all. That is the Lord. And so in our text, the question comes out, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? You're the ruler of all the nations. You are over it all. How could we not fear you? Why would we disregard fearing you and fear something else, someone else? We get to know the one who made all things. We get to belong to the one who made all things. There is no one like you, O Lord. Our text also tells us that no one can withstand his judgments. At his wrath, the earth quakes. Did you feel it last night? The earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. As opposed to an idol that cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. You know, we are all experiencing somewhat relatively mild forms of God's judgment. Although we're feeling it, aren't we not? This pandemic. Empty streets, empty stores, chaos in the streets of many of the cities. Fires burning up and down the West Coast while hurricanes are flooding the Gulf Coast. Wasn't it? Uh, well, I hate to say it was humorous, but when that earthquake hit last night, you think, are, are you kidding me? I mean, anything else? Isn't this like so typical for 2020? I saw a funny meme, somebody looking out the window saying, I'm just, just checking to see what chapter of Revelation we're in this week. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we're safe. Let's pray for those. Young Faith in, glad your house is still standing. Praise God for that. So glad for how God is sparing us all these tragedies. But, but let's not miss the reality of what's going on. God is at work. And all these things should very much be pressing your heart and my heart to press in to the Lord. This would be the worst time to pull away, to pull back, to relax this is the time. We should be realizing, oh, we need the Lord more than ever. We're realizing it more. We've always needed him. But now we're seeing all these things happen. It's just, it's just making the point that much more clear to our soul. We need the Lord. Our only security is in him. 
Jeremiah is saying, nobody is capable of standing against the judgments of God. He's too great. He's too powerful. He's too strong. You have no hope in resisting what he does. But there's one other point, and this is the best one of all. He keeps his own. He knows who are his. He knows his people, and he keeps them. If you have a Bible, look at verse 16, because verse 16 is key. Verse 16 is the power of God, the grace of God. Here comes the gospel. Verse 16 is the verse in the chapter where the, where the needle comes popping up through, pulling that gospel thread, which runs from Genesis to Revelation. Here comes a hint of what God is doing. Here comes the part of the text that points us to the grace of God. Now, verse 16 says this, not like these who he is, is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now, I realize that verse does not say, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die for your sins so that you and I could be forgiven and free and part of the family of God. I realize it doesn't say that explicitly, but it kind of does. It kind of does. It is God saying, I know who my people are. And I am going to do what it takes to keep my people, my people. I know whom I've set my affection on. And I have got a plan that is unfolding and is already underway and will for sure come to pass. And of course, this all culminating when, when Jesus shows up and enters the world and lays down his life for you and for me, thus securing our home, thus making us his own people. And here it talks about Jacob and talks about Israel, and yet we know in, in Romans chapter 9 that it's, it's really not just about being a descendant in Israel. Not all Israel is Israel, but those who follow Abraham by faith, those who come to the Lord by faith, those are the ones who are now the people of God. He saves all those who come to him in humility and faith, and he promises not to turn any one of these away. And these are the ones I hope you, I hope all of us, I hope everyone who's hearing my voice, you, we are the ones who live with no fear of judgment, but only hope in a future home. Of all people, we say, there is no one like you, oh Lord. How could you do this? How could you save us? How could you find us, set us apart? How could you take a heart like mine in rebellion, in resistance, who didn't care about you, who didn't think about you, who was not interested in you? How could you do this? And how could you make me your son, your daughter, and call me your own? Oh, amazing grace.
There is no one like you. Is that song in your heart? Because keeping your identity, staying on your purpose, realizing it, not falling off one side or the other, not assimilating into the culture around us, not isolating yourself from the culture that God's called us to reach. The solution to not falling off either side, the solution to really staying on track and knowing who we are in Christ and doing what God's called us to as the church, as the body of Christ, it all begins with you and I, each one of us having this song in our heart. You've got to say it with your whole heart and you've got to sing it with all your might. Oh Lord, there is no one like you. That's what was missing. That's why the people that Jeremiah was talking to in chapter 10 here were so far off their game. So God had to go through such extreme measures because they had lost that very thing. Who are you? What are you doing here? Do you know? How would you answer that question? Who or what has formed the answer to that question in your life? If you look to the peoples around us, the nations around us, and try to formulate some answer about yourself, who am I and what am I doing here? If you look anywhere else except to the Lord, you're going to come up with an answer that is laced with idolatry. And you're going to find yourself apart from the presence of God. But if you let the Lord answer that question, we should be not asking ourselves, we should be asking the Lord, who am I and what am I doing here? And let the Lord answer, you're my people. You're the sheep of my pasture. You're the ones that I've called and chosen to myself. You're the ones that I've set my affection on. You're the ones that I've set apart and called out. And you're the ones that I've preparing and sending in. You're the ones who are supposed to display the grace of God. You are a trophy of my grace. I put my grace in you. And that grace is like a seed that grows. And I want to see you grow and become like a tree that grows where everybody around can enjoy the fruit and the shade of that tree. They have the worship team make their way up. I am sending you to the nations. Okay, for us California residents, citizens, um, he has brought the nations to us. You're welcome. You don't have to move. You don't have to go anywhere. All the action it's right here. All the stuff, the good stuff that God is doing, it's right here, right here in Pasadena. We've got it right at our doorstep. I'm bringing you to the nations. I'm bringing the nations to you so that you can be my witnesses, so that the blessing of God's grace might work in you and through you and touch more and more people for God's glory. And when that work is done, then we get to go home. Father, thank you for keeping us your people. Thank you for the help of your spirit. And I pray for fresh strength for your people. Tonight, tomorrow morning, whenever 
someone might be listening to this message, oh Lord, that you would meet them and refresh their hearts. Stir up in us, Lord, this song afresh that there's no one like you. thing of your spirit, Lord, that that phrase would reside in each of our hearts with greater meaning, greater depth, greater power in our soul, that we would be amazed every minute of every day. This would go with us into every conversation, every place that we go. This song in the background, there's no one like you, oh Lord.